0: Welcome to the Be Good podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVN Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, psychology, neuroscience, economics, in order to get to know more about them, their work and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVN Edge Consulting. And with me is my colleague, Suzanne Kirkendall, CEO of BVN Edge Consulting, North America Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Eric. I'm very
0: excited to be back for another episode and to be introducing today's guest, Professor Vincent Pons. Vincent is an associate professor at Harvard Business School, and he is affiliated with the National Bureau of Economic Research, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab. Vincent's research examines the foundations of democracy, how democratic systems function, and how they can be improved. This work has appeared in journals such as Econometrica, the American Economic Review, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and the American Political Science Review. It has resulted in mentions and opinion pieces in media outlets, including the New York Times, The Economist, the BBC, Les Echos, and Le Monde. And last but not least, Professor Pons received the 2023 Best Young French Economist Award Vincent, welcome to our Be Good podcast.
2: Hi, thanks a lot for having me. Hi, Eric and Suzanne.
1: So, Vincent, first, uh, thank you so much again for being with us uh, today. Uh, Before talking about your research, we would like to know a little more about yourself and your career. I think you received your PhD in economics from the MIT. And I think uh, you worked at the time with Esther Duflo, uh, who is uh, now a Nobel Prize. You also hold a Master in Economics from the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris, joined with the Paris School uh, of Economics and Insight, and a Master's Degree in Political Philosophy uh, from Université Paris 1 Panthéon-Sorbonne. Can you? Explain us this journey and why you became interested at the end of the day in the topic of the foundation of democracy and electoral behavior.
2: Yes, yeah, so I started uh, by studying philosophy, as, as you mentioned, and um, at the time I wrote a master thesis on um, trying to understand the international contemporary system. Um, by uh, through, through the lenses of Karl Marx. I thought that, you know, now that the Berlin Wall had fallen, uh, you could read Karl Marx without asking yourself, as had been the case before, um, is the USSR what he had planned for, for communism? And so I thought that uh, his uh, intellectual approach was very uh, fruitful to think about uh, the way in which economics and politics interact in the world. Uh, but, um, after a while i i thought that if i was going to do proper philosophy i needed to have more facts more material to to think from and um, for that reason i started also studying economics and then i got more and more interested in economics Um, i decided to do a phd and initially uh, i was planning to work on development economics so on the question of poverty but when i arrived in the u.s in 2008 i was an observer of the last months of the Obama campaign. And I was very impressed by that campaign, because it was so different from what I knew uh, about French electoral campaigns. And so uh, that puzzled me. And um, I started getting more and more curious about what Obama was doing, about the emphasis on uh, going on the field, on mobilizing volunteers to try and get out the vote. And um, I started wondering whether these methods were applicable in France. And so that's got me into thinking about uh, democracy, about elections. And slowly, I uh, was not just interested in this, but uh, I also started doing research on these questions.
1: Uh, could you share with us at that time, maybe, or later, any mentors that had a particularly strong influence on you? Do you have any researcher or the people who have played an influential role in your uh, professional career
2: yes uh, you mentioned esther Duflo. Um, i contacted her at the time i was an exchange student at the university of chicago and um, a friend told me why don't you contact esther you are interested in development economics uh, you're french uh, you went through the same schools as she did uh, so perhaps she can give you some good advice and, and i did so and esther um, Uh, recruited me as a research assistant so i spent one year in morocco working on a project from her research lab the poverty action lab and i really enjoyed that experience because it gave me uh, the confidence in the fact that research could be something that is very applied hands-on pragmatic practical um, in touch with real world problems and that's when i decided to apply to a phd and then naturally of course I went to MIT, where she became my supervisor. And so uh, ever since then, uh, we continue talking about uh, our, our mutual research. And, and she continues uh, being a, an incredible mentor to me. Um, and then at MIT, I met other people. I met uh, uh, Benjamin Olken, who worked on political economy questions, like the ones I started studying. Um, And since I was interested in elections and in political behavior, I went outside of just the economics department and I I started talking with many political scientists. Uh, Alan Gerber, Donald Green, who had done experiments measuring the effect of doctoral campaigns in the US, uh, starting an entire field of investigation, Stephen Solabere at Harvard. And so I, I got nourished both by Uh, the techniques and methods and questions of economists and those of political scientists. But I I should say that beyond mentors, uh, professors that have had a a great influence on me, oftentimes it's just uh, random discussions with friends that uh, made me take a, a certain uh, track or, or another. Like I mentioned, it's a friend who told me, why don't you contact Esther Duflo? And it was another friend who, uh, when I uh, was in France and I was studying philosophy, advised me to uh, look into economics. And, and that brought me to apply to uh, a, a master program in economics.
1: Maybe it's the time to mention uh, Guillaume Liéger or Arthur Muller because you created later a company with uh, your friends.
2: Yes, um, and in fact, um, when I arrived in Boston in in 2008, uh, Arthur Muller, who was a long time childhood friend, also uh, arrived to study for one year at the Kennedy School. And we both met at that time uh, Guillaume Liege, who uh, was also a student of the Kennedy School. And so the three of us um, were observing the Obama campaign. And it's together that we decided that uh, it would be a good idea to see if we could bring some of the methods that Obama was using, namely organizing volunteers to knock on doors, um, focusing on mobilizing non-voters instead of persuading undecided voters, and using a lot of data to target the voters uh, that the campaign would talk to. It's together with Arthur and Guillaume that we thought, okay, let's see if we can import these uh, methods in France to improve the way in which campaigns are run in France.
0: Fantastic. So, Vincent, you know, you've alluded to this a little bit just now. Your research really examines the foundations of democracy. And in your research, you break down the electoral cycle into four essential steps which are the factors affecting voter participation, the factors shaping preferences, the representativeness of results, and the effects of election outcomes on policies and on countries' economic performance. So I'd love to ask you a bit more about that first factor because it's so huge. According to your research, what are the main factors that affect voter participation?
2: So like any good economist, I think of this question in terms of costs and benefits. And uh, in the end, I believe that uh, people participate when uh, the perceived benefit of doing so uh, is higher than the cost. So, of course, when we talk about cost, uh, this is not a financial cost. It used to be the case that uh, you needed to have uh, sufficiently large property in many countries to be able to vote um, today. That's not the case, but uh, there's an informational cost. You need to understand when the election takes place, uh, who the candidates are, how they are ranked on the left-right axis, and how close they are from you. Um, In many countries, in France and the US in particular, you need to register on the voter rolls to be able to vote. And again, there might be information gap about what's the registration deadline, what are the uh, documents that you need to bring to be able to get on, on, on the voter rolls. Um There's the time that is required to vote. That's another cost. You need to go to the polling station. Um, in the US, oftentimes, you need to queue, uh, sometimes for multiple hours. So it's a non-negligible amount of time. And given that the election is on a Tuesday, this might require for you uh, taking a half day off work. Uh, so that's a, a significant cost. And then when we talk about benefits, what do we have in mind? I think there are two main types of benefits. One is expressive. So do you like, is there one of the candidates that you really like, that you feel close to? Uh, And uh, in a sense, it's even part of your identity. You're on the left, or you're a Green voter, and there's a Green candidate, and he has a program, or she has a program that you feel really close to. And then there's instrumental benefit. Do you think that perhaps there's no candidate that you like so much, but you recognize that there's a very big difference between them, and there's a very big difference between the policies that they would implement? And so the reason why you might vote is uh, that you try and contribute to a big decision for the country, which is do we vote with that candidate or with this, uh, with this candidate? And so in the end, voters balance. Uh, these benefits, expressive and instrumental, with the costs, information and administrative, and they vote if the benefits are sufficiently large.
0: makes a lot of sense. So we are seeing that in many democratic countries, like France, like the United States, that voter turnout is decreasing. What do you think explains this decline?
2: Um, So, you're right that voter turnout is decreasing in most democracies, um, including France. The US is a little bit of an exception because turnout decreased until the early 2000s and in recent elections there have been actually record uh, participation, which I think is a testimony to the role of... uh, benefits. Um, We're at a time of such polarization in the US that many voters, even if they don't necessarily like any of the two candidates, they recognize that the two candidates they can choose between uh, are very different. And so they feel that they have to to participate and and, and to tilt the scale uh, in the direction that they prefer. Um, But in the other countries where participation is declining, um, I think, you know, there are still costs of uh, of participating. I mentioned, for instance, the cost of getting registered to vote, the cost of walking to the polling station. But uh, the, the truth is that many of these costs have decreased uh, recently, because many countries have tried to make it easier for people to participate. So there's still a long way to go to uh, make participation as costless as possible. But I think the trend in in the decline participation would have to be explained rather by a decrease in the perceived benefits of voting, a decrease in the civic norm that tells you that you should vote because that's part of what being a citizen is. A decrease in the perceived differences between the programs of the major parties, um, leading many voters to conclude that the result of the election is not going to make much of a difference.
0: In behavioral science, we do know that to encourage the adoption of behavior, we need to make it clear, we need to provide motivation, we need to facilitate the action by reducing friction or make it easy, as you said. What are your recommendations to reverse this decline, to strengthen this act of voting?
2: Together with two colleagues, we wrote uh, a piece for the Council of Economic Analysis in in France, uh, the Conseil d'Analyse économique, where we answered exactly that question. What can be done to improve participation? And we came up uh, with four recommendations, uh, some of which that can be implemented by the state and others that should be implemented by political parties. The first one was to reduce the cost of voting as much as possible, uh, because there is still a lot that can be done here. And in France, Uh, the main recommendation here is to make voter registration automatic for all citizens. Currently, if uh, you move to a new address, which is the case for many young voters, for instance, you will not get registered uh, in the closed municipality and polling station unless you actually take it upon yourself of going to the town hall, providing a piece of uh, identification, a proof of address, And a lot of young voters and other voters are not registered at all or not registered in the right place for that reason. This is a cost that has no reason to exist, because the state has the addresses uh, and the names of all the citizens. And so the state could take care of of registering them. To further decrease the cost, what could be done is to reduce the number of days in which there are elections. Again, I'm thinking here about France, but that's the case in other countries. you know going to vote is a bit of a natural sport uh, almost every year there's an election of some sort uh, sometimes it's the cantonal election sometimes the regional election sometimes the municipal election oh this year it's the european election and then the next one the parliamentary election and perhaps another one the presidential election why do we have uh, so many different dates we could imagine that cantonal uh, municipal and regional elections, which are all forms of local elections, all take place on the same day, that presidential and legislative election take place on the same day. This would mechanically reduce the cost because you would go to the polling stations much much less often. Um, then a third recommendation to work on the benefit side was to uh, encourage door to door campaigns and for parties to Uh, lead many, many more door-to-door discussions with voters. And the last recommendation was to think about civic education and try to reform civic education. Because I think um, one of the reasons why participation has declined is, as I mentioned, this decreased uh, norm of voting. Uh, And the way in which this norm can be calculated in in, uh, young voters is through civic education. But we all remember civic education courses that were extremely boring, abstract, focusing on the institutions. Instead, civic education could be something very lively, uh, where we would discuss case studies, um, moments in which democracy was in the balance in France, perhaps. Uh, under the Vichy regime or during the Third Republic when they were still monarchists. Uh, I think you know, discussing these uh, actual cases and having a debate about these cases uh, would uh, make uh, the civic norm uh, much more likely to stick among young voters.
1: Yeah, very interesting. Vincent, in the cycle you describe, the second step after electoral participation is quite big question too. Uh, which is about political preferences. And I would like uh, us to discuss uh, this uh, now. According to your research, perhaps, other research too, what are the main factors that shape and influence political preference, especially what is the role, because I know you have worked on this, of campaign TV debates, and we will speak later about door-to-door campaigns. So, you know,
2: I think in social science, there are really two big views about uh, political behavior, one, and and behavior more broadly. One is that, broadly speaking, we get socialized into uh, some political preferences, and then we keep them for the rest of our life. And another one is that, no, the context in which we grow up and then the context in which we live exert a large influence on uh, how we behave. And so, at the very broad level, that's the first question I've asked. Uh, how much do our political preferences uh, come from uh, just uh, the family uh, education that we received and how much is influenced by the context? And what I found is that the context exerts a, a very strong influence. And uh, the way in which I was able to show this with a co-author is by tracking people who move from one state to another in the US. Uh, Imagine someone who moves from Texas, a very Republican state, to Massachusetts, a very Democratic state. And what we observe is that when you follow that trajectory, you are very likely to uh, become a Democrat, even if you were a Republican initially. So, people respond to the context, they respond to the discussions, to the uh, influence of peers. And so then, of course, that begs the question of what in the context matters so much. And um, what I have found repeatedly in many projects is that there's a key role of electoral campaigns. In a democracy, that's the key moment, Um, the key moment where parties reach out to voters. And uh, many of us change our mind during electoral campaigns. I have been able to establish that uh, between um, uh, 17% and 30% of voters, depending on the country, changed their mind in the last two months uh, before the election due to uh, the campaign. And then, of course, the next question is, what exactly in the campaign is so critical to change our political preferences? Um, and you know, I think oftentimes um, in today's age where there are very salient moments, like, TV debates between the candidates. When we try to understand uh, who won the election, we try to see if there was a key moment. And oftentimes, we tend to look at a TV debate where a candidate made a gaffe or a candidate was particularly charismatic. Uh, But surprisingly, I found that TV debates don't have much of an effect. Uh, Instead, what seems to matter is discussions that take place uh sugar the campaign uh, between uh, voters and their friends, their family members, their neighbors, that this is what slowly shapes up our uh, decision to vote for one candidate or, or for another. Uh,
1: so uh, I just mentioned that uh, you have worked uh, extensively on the role of door-to-door campaigning, and you mentioned this uh, a little about uh, the time you observed the uh, Obama campaign in twenty. Uh, or, uh, eight, You have even written a book on this uh, uh, topic and I would say personally contributed to door-to-door uh, campaign in French presidential election. So can you explain your studies on the role of uh, door-to-door campaigning and the results obtained?
2: Yes, the the initial motivation to do door-to-door came from reading the work by uh, political scientists in the US that I mentioned before, Donald Green and Alan Gerber, who, starting in 1998, uh, ran experiments where they would knock on doors of some uh, young voters or older voters. Uh, they started in New Haven, which is the city in which their university, Yale University, uh, is located. And so they had a group that received door to door and a comparison group, um, uh, randomly drawn, that did not receive this type of, uh, of campaign. And what they found is that door to door increased the participation of voters to a large extent. And so Initially, my question uh, with Arthur and Guillaume was whether this type of campaign and door to door contact was also effective in a very different context uh, like France. And I remember that at the time, some French politicians told us, yes, I do that. I think that's a way to mobilize voters. And others said, no, not at all. This is a very Protestant, proselytic uh, <laughs> endeavor. In France, people will not like that you knock on their door, and that you start talking politics. It's a much more private topic than, than in the US. Uh, but we ran a first experiment in twenty. 20- 10 in um, the region surrounding Paris. And we found that door-to-door mobilized lots of voters, particularly among French people who were born abroad and, and, and among uh, their, their kids. Um, and then in, in other work, I found that uh, thanks to these door-to-door interactions, you can um, give people information about the election and also help them circumvent some, some of the costs, such as the costs of, of registering. And then the next question was, can you use door-to-door not just to mobilize voters, but also, does that change uh, who they choose to vote for? And so in 2012, we did a very large-scale experiment. Um, The three of us were contributing to the Holland campaign, and we were directing the field campaign. And so in each and every French city or French uh, uh, rural area, we had some polling places that were covered by the campaign and others that were not. And so at the end of the campaign, at the, after the election, we could compare the results in places that had received door-to-door and in others. And we found that door-to-door had uh, convinced many voters to vote for Hollande when they would otherwise have voted for another candidate, such as Nicolas Sarkozy. So this shows that This shows the power of these personal discussions that can take place on the doorstep, not just to convince someone to vote, but sometimes even to change who they choose
1: to vote for. I uh, remember uh, having read, I think it was in the Victory Lab uh, book, that some uh, nudges have been also used by uh, uh, the Obama uh, team in 2008, for example, in uh, phoning, campaigning, uh, uh, asking people to uh, to know uh, if they know the date, if they know how they will go to the uh, office to vote. And uh, uh, it has increased their uh, behavior. Also, the use of some word, uh, I am a voter, rather than uh, let's go to vote. And uh, have you uh, experienced also some type of uh, 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 experiment to test, uh, not just like this one. Yes, it's it's
2: very interesting that you mentioned this. In fact, I have a colleague at uh, Harvard, um, Todd Rogers, who uh, tested the effect of uh, scripts where you encourage people to form a voting plan, And, and what he found is that if you have a discussion with a voter and you not just ask them to vote, but you tell them, "Oh, okay, you tell me that you're going to vote, but uh, do you know when exactly in the day you're going to vote? And um, are you going to start from home? Are you going to vote with a friend?" The the fact that we um, think about a concrete plan increases our chances of actually implementing that plan on, on election day. Uh, there was another. Uh, nudge that was used by um, in an experiment I think by Gerber and Green where um, they they mentioned to voters that uh, after the election, the list of people that voted in their building would be uh, made public on the on the building door um, many voters were very dissatisfied with uh that experiment because i didn't like the idea that your neighbors would be able to check that uh, they did not vote and so afterward another treatment was applied which was a a more subtle version of that in which um, someone would knock on your door and they would say oh eric i I see that you have been an active voter in uh, in 2018 and, and in 2014 and and i want to thank you for being such a a good citizen. And, and of course, I hope that after the election, we can thank you again uh, for, for participating. And so this was providing in a subtle way the information that if you vote, some people can observe it, but
1: without making it too explicit and too brutal. Um, another topic, uh, Vincent, in the years 2016 and 2017, there were at least three very surprising electoral outcomes I would say, even for political scientists and experts in uh, different countries, the Brexit victory in England, Trump's win in the US, and Emmanuel Macron's victory in France. Do you see any uh, commonalities in this election? And how do you explain these surprising results? And also, why experts have been surprised?
2: Um, so the first question is why experts were surprised. And, and I think here, the, uh, one explanation is that these were novel types of candidates. So it's hard; it's always hard to prepare to something that uh, you have not uh, experienced before. It's also that the polls uh, did not predict these outcomes. In, in, in the UK, the poll did not predict that the Brexit uh, had a chance of winning. In uh, the U.S., very few pollsters and even aggregators predicted that there was a decent chance for Trump to win. I remember at the time, Nate Silver, who was the website uh, 538, he was one of the one of those saying, "Look, there's approximately a one-third chance of Trump winning." And you know, everyone in the field was nearly insulting him for saying, "Look, you're out of your mind. Clinton is going to win by landslide." So uh, that's in part because the polls, um, you know, did not. Uh, include uh, that 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 possibility uh, and uh, of course you know the polling industry is a very it's a very difficult job uh, you have to understand y- you have to survey people you have to understand who is going to vote or not so that's the first difficulty no, sorry. First difficulty, people don't answer the phone. You have a very small fraction of people who answer the phone or who respond online. Then once, once they answer, you need to understand who will vote or not and, and only keep those who say that they will vote. But of course, that's measured with, with error. And then uh, you have to ask them, who will you vote for? And you can have some closet Trump supporters who will not reveal that they intend to vote for Trump because they think it's not a choice that is acceptable. And so if you add these three, uh, margins of error, of course, uh, it's a heroic exercise to predict the outcome of an election. Um, now, I think uh, beyond the, the, the mismatch and, and the, the lag and, and the gap between the polls and the actual outcome, these outcomes are uh, you know, quite striking. And the fact that they took place at the same time is quite striking. Uh, and I view this as uh, the expression of a rise in populism, Uh, of backlash against uh, the elite, um, the rise of a discourse that opposes the virtuous people presented as a homogeneous entity and uh, the corrupt elite that uh, is trying to prevent the people from achieving uh, what uh, they deserve. Um, And I think this backlash comes in part from uh, the backlash against globalization, uh, the connection is that uh, globalization is associated with the elite as some, uh, an entity that benefits from it and that has been pushing for, for more of it. Uh, and I think we're now in a in a moment in which um, many people have suffered from globalization. They have been uh, winners, but also losers. And so after a while, these losers have um, started embracing uh, other ideas. So the Brexit, the victory of Trump, the victory of Macron, all in their way... Um, express uh, dissatisfaction with the mainstream parties. And of course, um, Macron, in a sense, is is an opposite outcome because he's a candidate who is uh, uh, the candidate of globalization, the candidate uh, pushing for a stronger Europe. But interestingly, if you look at his rhetoric, particularly in the 2017 campaign, there was also some populist uh, elements in it, Uh, a critic of the system, for instance, uh, that was uh, often present in his speeches.
0: So to continue with the four steps of the electoral cycle, the third step is what you call the representativeness of results. Can you first explain to our listeners what you mean by that?
2: Yes. So what I mean by that is that um, when you think of an election, one way to think about it is that it's an exercise to aggregate uh, people's preferences. Um, And so you start with people's preferences. So some people are on the left, some people are on the right, some people uh, want more taxation, some people less so, etc. You start with this bunch of preferences uh, on many different dimensions. Um, And then this will translate into an outcome. And there are two steps in this translation. The first is that each and every voter has to decide how to translate their own preference into a candidate that they will vote for. Uh, so that's the first mapping and then once all the uh, voters have uh, decided which candidate to vote for once all ballots have been cast there's a second mapping between uh, these uh, ballots and who wins the election so for instance in a proportional system that second mapping would say um, that all the candidate that all parties will receive a number of seats that is proportional to uh, the number of votes that they receive. In a majoritarian system, in each constituency, it will be a winner-take-all system. whoever has more than 50% of the votes will win uh, everything. And so you could imagine that a party wins all the seats in the country, even if in each constituency they only have 51% of the votes. So the the second mapping will affect the first mapping. The way in which ballots are translated into an outcome will affect how each and every one of us decides how to vote. For instance, if I know that there's proportion that will be applied in the second moment, I might vote for a relatively small party um, in the first uh, mapping. Um, If, instead, I realise that it's a winner-take-all system, I will not want to vote for a small candidate because I know that I will be losing my vote. Uh, And so, at the end of the day, uh, we call results representative if the eventual outcome, for instance, uh, how the parliament looks like, who wins the presidential election, corresponds to the initial preferences of as many voters as possible.
0: So you've previously mentioned that imbalance across different political sides and failed coordination within side may decrease the representativeness of election outcomes. Can you tell us more about how election rules can either exacerbate or alleviate these concerns, maybe starting with the question of imbalance across different political sides?
2: Right. So imagine a situation in which... Um, you have uh, lots of voters who have left-wing preferences. They, they really want uh, more redistribution. Uh, perhaps culturally, they are also more on the left. They want uh, a strong reaction on the environment. Uh, but uh, there's a right-wing candidate that has a lot of money right? A lot of money. And uh, because of that money, that candidate is able to run a campaign that is much more intense than the campaign run on the left. He's able to, in the US, for instance, to run lots of TVS, to mobilize the voters, to spread disinformation, to spread lies about the opponent. And so in the end, that candidate wins the election. So that's an example in which you have imbalance between these two sides, and you end up with a right-wing winner even though initially most voters were on the left. Uh, so that's an undesirable outcome. Ideally, in a democracy, all sides have the means to do a proper campaign, uh, and they can fight uh, with, uh, with equal okay, capacity. So how how can you ensure that? Well, one way to ensure that is to pay attention to the campaign finance rules. Here, there's a big difference between what exists in the U.S., where there are very few limits to uh, the amount of money that candidates can spend and that super PACs can spend in, in, in supporting certain candidates, um, and in France, where instead there are a stringent limits. For instance, if you're a presidential candidate that qualifies for the second round, you cannot spend more than 22 million euros. So, this is much less than the 1 billion that was spent by Biden in the last uh, election. And on top of that, um, the state reimburses the campaign spending of the candidates who get more than 5% of the votes. And so, that ensures that um, it's not going to be the case that some candidates can spend more because they are supported by companies. Now, all the candidates will have some public support uh, to, to to be able to run their campaign. And therefore, uh, these uh, rules in France level the playing field between the candidates.
0: Great. The other thing that can lead to unrepresentative outcomes was failed coordination of voters and parties within one side. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah. So this is, again, a It seems technical, but it's quite easy to understand. If you imagine an election where whoever gets the most votes is elected, and uh, where you have more than two candidates, right? So imagine, for instance, the 2000 election in the US, uh, where you have Bush, uh, uh, Gore, and Clinton. um, uh, Bush, Gore, and and Nader, sorry. Um, what what happens is that some voters will vote for Ralph Nader, even though Ralph Nader has a very uh, low chance of uh, winning the election. Many of these voters would have voted for Al Gore otherwise. Um, and uh, you end up with a victory by Bush because there was a failed coordination between uh, Al Gore and, and, and Nader. Um, if you think of an election where you have, in France, in the second round of the parliamentary elections, three candidates that made it to the second round, two on the left, one on the right, there's a risk that uh, the left splits the votes between these two candidates. Um, what candidates can do to avoid that is reach an agreement and say, "Okay, one of us is going to stay out of the race so that we don 't split the votes and if that doesn 't happen, voters can try to coordinate so for instance, voters can uh, um, you know choose to vote for whoever had the highest rank in the first round, uh therefore increasing the chance that this candidate ends up winning the election but of course, this coordination between parties and candidates on one hand and between voters on the other hand, does not always take place or is not always perfect. And um, when it's not perfect, you end up with a situation like in 2000 uh, in the US, where uh, whoever wins the election is not the candidate that was favored by uh, a majority of voters.
1: Uh, Vincent, uh, now we are at the final step of your uh, electoral cycle, which is uh, the effects of election outcomes. You assess the extent to which the result of national election influence policy and, in turn, social and uh, economic outcomes. What are for you the key learnings from your work regarding this topic? Uh, so
2: together with Ben Marx, who is a colleague at Boston University, and Vincent Rollet, who is a PhD candidate um, at MIT, we got interested in the question of the effects of electoral turnovers, so those elections in which the party in power loses the election. And the reason why we got interested in this is that, after all, living in a democracy means living in a system in which uh, occasionally the incumbent loses the election. Uh, and that's the difference with an autocracy. In an autocracy, you might have an election, but uh, surprise, surprise, uh, it's always the same party that wins the election. Uh, in the last election in Turkey, Erdogan had 60 times more time uh, to speak than his opponent. So, of course, you know the opponent has little chance of winning. In Russia, uh, when there's an election, there's very little... Uh, uh, you know, doubt about the outcome of the election. Instead, if you look at France and the US, occasionally the party in power will uh, lose the election. There will be a turnover. and So we wanted to know uh, what the effects of such turnovers, which are such an important aspect of uh, being in a democracy, uh, what the effect is. And on one hand, you could imagine that turnovers uh, are not so good for the country because they could create political instability and uncertainty. After all, if the incumbent is reelected, you know which policies they stand for. If a challenger comes to power who knows what they will do. You can only observe what they campaigned on, but you don't know which policies they have implemented in the past. Um, on the other hand, turnovers could have a positive effect because uh, whoever comes to power and is new might have more energy and they might be more willing to change policies, to put effort, they might be less corrupt. Uh, so what we did is that we collected the results of all national presidential and parliamentary elections in the entire world since 1945. And we studied elections that are very close in which either the incumbent is narrowly reluctant or narrowly defeated. And what we find is that when the incumbent is narrowly defeated, so there's an, a new party coming to power, there's a turnover. Uh, typically, we observe an improvement in the economic performance of the country and, and the performance on other dimensions as well. So for instance, there's uh, generally a little bit less inflation, less uh, unemployment, more trade uh, when you have a turnover. And some of that is because the new uh, comer is more willing to change policy and to find the best policy that is tailored to uh, what the country needs, and on top of that, we also observe better governance and less corruption when there's a turnover. It's as if there's a little bit of uh, an erosion of power. Uh, what in, Fran- in French we call la fatigue du pouvoir, the power fatigue that uh, starts ticking in, if someone has or if a party has been in power for too long, and the only way to avoid that is to replace them with a with a new party.
1: And um, uh, more generally. Uh uh, I know you uh, study uh, also the influence of uh, uh, key, di- uh, uh, key economic dimension and uh, democratic functioning. Uh, and uh, what could you uh, share about the impact of uh, inflation or uh, unemployment on this electoral cycle? Do you have any uh, learnings? Yeah, so. Um one of the rules that uh,
2: has been uncovered by people uh, studying the results of elections trying to understand them and to predict them is that one of the best predictors is the economic situation in the country before Um, if the economy is doing well then uh, the incumbent has strong chances of being reelected if uh, there is a recession if there is high unemployment if there is High inflation. There's actually a thing called the dissatisf- dissatisfaction index or the misery index, where you add the level of inflation and the level of uh, unemployment. If that misery index is very high, uh, then the chances that the incumbent gets reelected are 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 low. Uh, so, uh, you know, voters uh, vote a bit uh, based on uh, their uh, their wallet and uh, they will sanction an income that has not been able to give them um, uh, uh, prosperity.
1: Uh, And what about uh, uh, trust in government and uh, uh, the influence it could have on the the, uh, electoral cycle and democracy?
2: Uh, trust is a, is a, of course a, a key ingredient uh, of democracy it's a key determinant of the odds of election of uh, the incumbents but what i find worrying today is that uh, uh, trust in elected officials and trust in institutions and satisfaction with how democracy works has been plummeting in uh, most western democracies there's a question that has been asked for a long time which is how uh, which is uh, do you believe that uh, politicians care about what people like you think. And in the 1960s and 70s, uh, in France, in Italy, in the UK, in the US, you had a solid majority of respondents who said, yes, I, I think that they care about what people like me think. Today, it's in the low 20s or 30% who say, I, I, I think that they care about what uh, what I think. So that's very. I think it's very concerning. And that's one of the reasons also for the decline in participation because uh, if you believe that uh, your leaders are just in for themselves, not for the common good, you really don't think that the election is going to matter too much because whoever wins is just going to try and uh, satisfy their own interests and that's not going to make much difference uh, for uh, for the broader public.
0: So to continue on that topic to something that's really important and current is about the state of democracy world worldwide right it appears to be in a bit of a challenging situation because of things like trust and economic situation but this is happening even in countries with a very strong historical democratic tradition so what do you think is explaining this this challenge right now
2: so you know i think it's important to take a step back uh and and to realize that the history of democracy is not linear it has come in uh In in, uh, ups and downs. Um, There's this important work about uh, uh, the three waves of democratization. There's a very a long first wave, very slow wave in the 19th century, where you have an increasing number of countries that become democracies, and that stops uh, when uh, Mussolini comes to comes to power. And then you have a retreat with the number of democracies in the, in the world decreasing. Then there's a second wave that starts after World War II. Um, you have an increasing number of democracies again, in part as a result of um, uh, decolonization and many new many former colonies uh, that become uh, democracies, but that. That goes back as some of these countries turn into dictatorship in the 1960s. And then there's a third wave that uh, starts in the 1970s. That starts in the southern Europe, in Portugal, Spain, that become democracies, uh, former countries in the former Soviet bloc, uh, and then countries in uh, Latin America that also uh, turn to democracy as the Vatican embraces democracy uh, as uh, their preferred form of regime. Um, And I think we're now at the end of that third wave, and and we see a backlash, a retreat away from that third wave. It's hard to understand why exactly, uh, but in a sense, the fact that there's a retreat is not surprising when we look at the broader history of, uh, of democracy. If I had to formulate one hypothesis for the main reason uh, for that retreat, it would be globalization and the pushback against globalization, which is uh, a form of economic regime that has been uh, proposed uh, and pushed forward by the elites in many countries, and that in, in some cases has come in tension with democratic policymaking. Because, of course, democratic policymaking takes place within the confines of a nation state, whereas globalization is a system in which economic uh, transactions take place in an international level, and so they can enter in tension, they can create competition between the policies, the policies that are defined uh, within uh, individual uh, democratic countries.
0: Fascinating. Putting it in context like that really helps with perspective, I think. Given all of that, what suggestions would you have for improving the state of democracy as we're in this transition state, perhaps? And how would it vary by country, perhaps France versus the United States?
2: So I I think there's no magic weapon, unfortunately. One of the reasons why I do the work I do uh, trying to decompose democracy in in different steps is I think we have to go back to the basics of uh, how democracy functions and and see in each of these steps what can be done. We had a discussion before about what can be done to improve voter turnout. That seems to me like a a first measured step. Uh, You don't have a democracy if people don't come out to vote. But yes, there's no magic uh, weapon because democracy is... By construction, an exercise in which you delegate policy making to tens or sometimes hundreds and millions of citizens, and so to improve democracy, you need to uh, change the way in which uh, tens or hundreds and millions of citizens uh, uh, behave. You need to, um, you know, in, make uh, tens of millions of citizens who were perhaps thinking of not voting instead convincing them to to go to the to go to the polls. Um, I think in many countries. The key ingredient of democracy, which is very old-fashioned, but nonetheless extremely important, is interpersonal discussions. And I believe uh, that uh, there's an effort that uh, should be done by states, but also by political parties, organizations, companies, uh, to make sure that um, these interpersonal discussions take place. Because oftentimes, what I have found in my research is that it's these discussions that mobilize us to vote, and that uh, help us decide which candidate to vote
1: for. Vincent, so unfortunately we are at the end of uh, our conversation it was a wonderful uh, conversation uh, especially for those interested in this electoral cycle and democracy and we are uh, very happy uh, uh, to have you also at the human advantage conference to discuss this i have a a, a final final uh, uh, question which is What are your current areas of thinking, of reflection, and perhaps the studies you are currently working on? Uh,
2: So I can mention two of them. Um, One is a a work that uh, we're doing currently to measure the effects of protests that take place uh, in many democracies. In a sense, that's part of being in a democracy. Um, Voters can intervene in the public debate, not just by casting a ballot every two or four years, but uh, also by protesting when they are dissatisfied um, with some event or with some policies. And we have seen a multiplication of protests lately. So uh, the question we ask is, uh, how do these protests affect the attitudes and the, the behavior of, of others? Uh, do they increase uh, voter turnout in the areas in which a protests take place? Do they change people's minds? Do they increase the salience of the topics um, that are um, the motivation for the protest. So we have collected a data set with all the protests that have taken place in the US in the last few years. And we have merged this with data on uh, political behavior and on uh, uh, policy preferences to see how much protests matter. Because there is some work showing that, for instance, the Black Lives Matter protest uh, after the death of George Floyd had a, a lot of impact. But we want to know whether other protests also have a similar type of effects. And then there's another project in which, um, you know, I mentioned before how I have found that the context in which we currently live affects uh, whether we vote or not and our party affiliation, with the example of that person that moves from uh, Texas to Massachusetts. Uh, now, uh, with a team of co authors, we're interested in measuring the long-lasting influence of the context in which you grew up as a kid or or as an adolescent. Uh, And so we want to know, for instance, if someone who spends more time during their childhood in a particular county ends up with a political behavior as a young adult that is closer to the behavior of other people in that county. And and the primary results that we get is that, yes, the childhood and adolescence environment affects a lot how you behave uh, as an adult. So these are two of the projects, two examples of the projects I'm currently working on.
0: Fantastic. So thank you so much again for joining us. Could you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work going forward?
2: So I have a website in which I post uh, all my academic uh, articles that uh, people will find if they type my name Vincent Pons um, there's also this book that we wrote now uh, 10 years ago porte a porte reconquérir uh, la démocratie sur <laughs> le terrain door to door how to reconquer democracy on the field uh, it's interesting because one of the major insights of that group of that book was the importance of discussions that can take place between ambassadors of a political party and, and voters. And uh, I still believe that this is a key ingredient and that we need more of these uh, discussions. Uh, and then for uh, French readers, um, I write a monthly column at uh, Les Echos uh, that uh, they can read, in which I talk about democracy, political economy, sometimes uh, the US. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm advertising it and. Um, uh, I'm more than willing to discuss with my readers uh, if they have uh, feedback or, or or questions regarding this uh, monthly column. Wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks a lot, Vincent. It was uh, really uh, very helpful and uh, a nice conversation. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot uh,
2: to you, Eric, and thanks a lot, uh, Suzanne, for uh, this amazing discussion.
0: Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.